Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles here again of the mindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Michael Shaw, President of Freedom Advocates. Michael Shaw has had a very varied career as a public accountant, tax attorney, self-employed businessman and abundance ecologist. And in the mid-1990s, he participated in the Santa Cruz County, California Local Agenda 21 program. But now he works to warn people of the dangers of the UN's Agenda 21 program and the tyranny of sustainable development to audiences across the U.S., and beyond. Michael Shaw, may I say to you, thank you ever so much for sparing the time to talk with us on The Mind Renewed. Well, I'm, uh, I'm privileged to be able to do that and looking forward to our discussion. Great, thanks very much. Now, I heard you many, many times over the years on Dr. Stan Monteith's Radio Liberty program, and you were talking about the dangers of Agenda 21. So I thought it would be wonderful to have you on. So thank you ever so much again for coming on. Now, many listeners will no doubt be aware that Agenda 21 is this United Nations document which was signed up by a large number of countries after the Earth Summit in, in Rio in 1992. And its purpose, or at least its stated purpose, and no doubt we'll get on to the question as whether there, there's a hidden purpose to this, but its stated purpose is to set guidelines for governments to implement policies for sustainable development for the good of the whole world. That's the idea. So could I begin by asking you to give us a brief sketch of the history of this Agenda 21 document, what steps led up to its creation and its acceptance by these countries? Well, the world has been moving toward this order, new order, for a long time, through the 20th century, certainly. Uh, Here in the United States, uh, Woodrow Wilson, back in 1912, when he became president, implemented many policies and directives, including his support for the League of Nations, which were all projective of where we are today. And of course, since then, we've had all the international institutions implemented in order to, on a global level, create this one world order. And those things include the the creation of the United Nations in the 1940s, and following that, the creation of the Bank of International Settlements, which takes all the fiat money currencies in the world, which is essentially all currencies in the world, and coordinates it under a central global directive. And then, of course, there's the World Trade Organization, which neuters countries in terms of their ability to establish their own trade policy. And, of course, the model for that is the European Common Market, and now the European Union, which really focuses national economies on globalist objectives. Well, many other international uh, organizations, controlling organizations, have evolved over the decades. And, uh, you know, when we got to the 1970s and 80s, the globalists looked out and said, gee, we haven't really localized global government. So in the 80s, plans were circulated around mostly Europe for the creation of an action plan for the localization of the globalist world order. And that's what Agenda 21 is. It is the action plan, the global-to-local action plan for world order. And um, in 1992, as you suggested, at the Earth Summit, UN conference held in Rio de Janeiro, this document was adopted. It's a 42-chapter document, over 300 pages, and it serves as the outline for the, quote, voluntary implementation by nations around the world for localizing this program called Sustainable Development 
which really is a program that, at its core, is collectivist in nature. It's a collectivist program that really creates a new form of communism. What's new about this form of communism that's Agenda 21? Well, in essence, it's a different economic system than the old-fashioned Soviet communism. You know, under that system, government ran business. Government owned business. Government was business. And government's capacity to create an economic dynamic certainly did not fare well for those people subjected to the communist rule. And so Agenda 21, Sustainable Development, adopts a fascist system of economics to accompany the collectivist system or communist system of social policy. So we're truly getting the worst combination of political economic systems imaginable. Under Agenda 21, world population is to be reduced from 7 billion to 1 billion. Under Agenda 21, private property is to be abolished. Under Agenda 21, children are to be educated for global citizenship. And I'm not too familiar with the educational dynamic in Great Britain, but I can tell you here in the United States, that plan is faring very well. Most graduates from college and high school these days have been identified through polling as labeling themselves not as Americans, but as global citizens. Our youth are being taught to buy into these policies and principles, and that effort's working. And then the third leg of Agenda 21, first being the abolition of private property, the second being education for global citizenship. The third leg is to use technology to monitor and control all human action. And we see evidence of that everywhere. You certainly see it in major British cities, as I've read that uh, the average citizen is photographed 300 times during the course of his average day by government-controlled cameras. I can certainly believe that. Yeah, there are a lot of cameras around in the, the towns where I am, which is quite incomprehensible. They don't seem to be necessary at all, but there they are looking at us. <laughs> well, they, they, they want to make sure that you live a life in accordance with their directives. And um, for those who do, you can become, you can advance to the status of chattel in the service of your government. And for those who don't, well, the consequences are still to be determined. It's a very ominous program. It's a totalitarian system. It's a total control and a total remake of, or an attempt to remake, really the nature of human beings. It is the greatest, in my view, I've been studying this for a long, long time, it's the greatest threat humanity has ever faced. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you about many of those issues that you brought up there later in the program. Um, before we leave this, you mentioned the fact that Agenda 21 is essentially collectivist in its ideology. And when I was speaking to James Corbett a couple of months ago or so, um, it was very much that's what came out when we were talking about various globalist secret societies, semi-secret societies. That was the ideology that came out very strongly in that conversation. And our understanding of it in that interview was that collectivism is essentially there to give control to elites who can use this philosophy to dictate to everybody else what they say is for the good of the whole. And you said something along the lines that this was essential to the new world order. So do you see this as this Agenda 21 as a tool in the hands of the new world order? Oh, absolutely. The global infrastructure has been established mainly around the monetary system. But I sit here in Santa Cruz taking my funny money and live life reasonably normally in the sense that I don't feel uh, massively monitored and controlled. 
you know, my education is not dependent upon teaching me how to be a global citizen. You know, my children are grown. They were homeschooled. So I don't feel all this at the level that we are all going to begin feeling it once Agenda 21 takes full effect. Because Agenda 21 is the action plan to cause local communities to reshape themselves while creating this system of global government subjected to the objectives of a ruling elite, which at its base is directed and contrived by global bankers. So when we're done, we'll have a world order, a world government, where human beings are not recognized as having unalienable rights defined in conformance with American principles of natural law. I mean, America is the country that stands to lose the most, because certainly my belief that America's breakthrough with its Declaration of Independence, its acknowledgement of natural law, and the rights of man being core to the institution of government that works as a servant to the people, are the notions that are at the greatest risk of the Agenda 21 protocol. But I must say that my study has convinced me that it is America and Britain that are the leaders, the leaders of those two countries, are the forces that are most firmly behind the Agenda 21 protocol. It's easy in China to adopt it. They're used to totalitarianism. For China, it just slides right in. You can see that with their economic growth. They've adopted these corporatist or fascist economic principles that are at the core of the economics of Agenda 21. You know, they're not hung up by these notions embedded in the Magna Carta and the Declaration of American Independence. For the Chinese, it was an easy substitution in a way of life coming out of old-fashioned communism. And is it, am I right in thinking that the way in which our unalienable rights will be subverted or are being subverted is by always appeal to this collective whole that we have rights, but they can always be undermined if they don't fit the purposes that the, the elites say is good for the, for the whole world? Is, is that how our rights are being subverted? Well, they are. The idea of unalienable rights is that we're born with certain rights, including the right to life and the right to liberty, and the right to the use and enjoyment of one's property. And that notion is completely surrendered under the Agenda 21 protocol. You know, you can start by examining the provisions that call for population reduction. How do you have a right to life when your government is seeking the reduction of human population? How do you have the right to liberty when Agenda 21 is implemented? And you have to be working for the collective good and not in any recognition of individual needs or desires or philosophy. That's why Agenda 21 is so threatening, because, uh, you know, the right to life is no longer guaranteed, the right to liberty is vanquished, and the right to private property is abolished. This is argued to be in the collective common good. Well, it's in the collective common good if we view ourselves as sheep, with master human rulers without any recognition of the provisions of natural law. There's one thing that did worry me when I read the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, a lot of it, when I read it, I thought, yeah, that sounds very reasonable. But then when I got to Article 29, then some of it started to worry me. I mean, particularly point number three, where it says that, having talked about inalienable rights, we have inalienable rights, and then in point three of Article 29, it says, these rights and freedoms may in no case be exercised contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations, (laughs) which seems to compromise them at that point. 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, that that's such a sensitive subject, and and yet so underrealized by people around the world. You know, here in Santa Cruz, the, the local United Nations Association group prints out the Declaration of Human Rights from the UN, and they leave that section out. So that tells you something of the character of the folks, even at local levels, who support the idea of world government in that when you point out to them the big glaring hole in their informative document, they simply take that provision out and pretend like it's not there. I mean, it's quite dastardly. That is so deceptive and unpleasant. I agree with you entirely. Um, Would it be a mistake for people to think that this Agenda 21 is, because I mean, a lot of people think of it in socialist terms, or it's, yeah, it's part of a socialist ideology to make sure that wealth is you know, redistributed across the world and all these kinds of things. But would it be a mistake to think of that in a kind of party political way and think, oh, well, that's on the left of the party political spectrum. So we might expect, say, people who are members of the Democratic Party to be more on board with that than, say, the Republican Party. Would it be a mistake to think along those terms? Yes, I think it would be. My view of that is this, firstly. The economics of Agenda 21 is not pure socialism. You know, the old-fashioned communists were pure socialists. This is pure fascist. Now, some will say, but fascism is just a subsidiary of, of socialism. And, you know, I can understand that from a philosophical perspective. But if we look at the Western world political spectrum, you see socialists on the left and you see fascists on the right. And I say, well, they really become the same thing. Because under Agenda 21, the economics are fascist. And that means the establishment of a system of economics based not on private property and free enterprise, but instead a system based on public-private partnerships. Now, Mussolini called that corporatism. Hitler called it economic fascism. Today, we have this sweet-sounding term called public-private partnerships, which means a partnership between government and the businesses that government wants to favor. And that leads us to Prince Charles's Council for Sustainable Development, which was established, I think, in about 1993. And that takes the major multinational corporations of the world and put them under an umbrella where they're all working for the establishment of sustainable development Agenda 21 policies around the world. Well, we certainly can't call that system of economics purely socialism because they are independent businesses. <laughs> they only get ahead by doing the government's bidding. But as we learned with Adolf Hitler, economic fascism can be very efficient and very scary. And that's what Agenda 21 promises the world. So I would say, when we look at Democrats and Republicans in this country, that, that what Agenda 21 does is appeal to the leadership of both those groups. I mean, they're infiltrated with the globalist uh, push. I mean, liberals and conservatives, both. And what we find is that the left thrives on the social policies of Agenda 21, the collectivization and the social do-good designed to blow up in our face, while the right uh, associates with the big business public-private partnership dynamic. And so in this country, there is no one in either major political party in the United States Senate, for example, who will even talk about Agenda 21, because if they do, they will lose their party's support. And without party support, you just don't rise in this country to high political office. 
So anybody who talks about Agenda 21 or talks to the real essence of the dawning world order is simply dropped by the party and replaced by somebody who doesn't do that and somebody who plays their pantomime role as the right fights the left and the left fights the right while they work together for the implementation of this uh, world order. Absolutely, that political theater that we see increasingly going on in the world today. Um, Would you say that most people in the U.S. are actually aware of Agenda 21? I mean, is it mentioned on the mainstream media at all? Well, the short answer is awareness is rising, but it rises because of the efforts of individuals speaking one-on-one to other Americans. When it comes to the press, you find that the press has become so consolidated and controlled that the answer is no, the press by and large, other than alternative press sources, do not mention anything about Agenda 21. Here's an example. My county, Santa Cruz, on the central coast of California, has one newspaper. It's owned by Bill Gates. The county next to us, Monterey, on the other side of the bay here, has one newspaper. It's owned by Bill Gates. The county over the mountain from us Uh, The home of Silicon Valley and Santa Clara Valley has a big population and a big newspaper. It's owned by Bill Gates. Now, those three newspapers have never mentioned Agenda 21. My newspaper, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, um, I'm told that it is official policy. My name is never to appear in that newspaper. Is that so? I can tell you, you can take every metropolitan newspaper in the United States and it's owned by a globalist partner. There is no major newspaper in the United States that to date makes Agenda 21 an issue and works to cause the public to understand this. You can go to any television network, Agenda 21 is simply off limits. Now that's a function of the control and the consolidation of the news and information industry. There aren't many corporations that own all the print and all of the TV news in this country, and none of those people talk about Agenda 21. So for a long while, Agenda 21, to the extent there is any public discussion, was marginalized as conspiracy theory. Well, that's that's easy to dispute. I mean, our country signed this, quote, voluntary agreement, and uh, George Bush Sr. brought it into the federal agencies and made that a centerpiece, he and Bill Clinton, made that a centerpiece of the American federal policy. And uh, if you're talking about the Department of Interior or the Department of Education, it's all about the implementation of Agenda 21 policy. That's why ranchers, miners, and foresters in this country have been going broke like dominoes. Because the goal is to take these natural resources out of the hands of private individuals who've been, you know, supplying uh, American metropolis with the resources we've needed for the last 240 years and instead centralize it under the control of quote, public-private partners again so that the product of you know, Western U.S. Uh, resources can be separated from the people's needs. And so we're finding farmers going out of business. We're finding ranchers going broke, timber operators uh, folding up and mills closing. There's been a process going on for 20 years now, ever since the Agenda 21 protocol was adopted. This is a a sorry state for Americans and really for everyone in the world.
Absolutely. But as from what you've said about the way the mainstream media is not covering this issue, so when all of those things happen, those tragedies happen, people don't understand why they're happening. They don't make any link to this policy that's going on. Correct. But I think that has begun to change. Um, I find that uh, first they ignore you and then they try to ridicule you, which is a hard thing for them to do. And then they want to fight you and that's when we win. Because we'll win these fights if they're out in the open on a moral grounds, on a practical grounds, on a political ground, on an economic ground. We will win those battles when they get out into the open, but it's a, it's a hard thing to get them into the open. Absolutely. Well, this is where the Internet is so important. And as you say, once upon a time, to talk about Agenda 21 was considered to be conspiracy theorizing. Of course, the same is true of talking about the Bilderberg Group. I remember 20 years ago, people were talking about it, and people would say, oh, well, of course, that's just a lot of conspiracy theory. But thanks to the Internet, uh, people are getting to know about these things, and there is even some coverage now. Certainly with regard to the Bilderberg Group, there's been some coverage in mainstream media in recent years. Um, I wanted to move on to ways in which Agenda 21 is being implemented. Um, obviously, you will speak mostly from the point of view of the United States, but I'd be grateful if you could speak about other areas of the world as well, uh, if you can. As one main way in which this is being implemented is through work of an organization called ICLE, which is the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. And according to its website, and I'm quoting from them here, they say it's an, an international association of local and metropolitan governments dedicated to sustainable development. So on the surface, that sounds great. You know, who could disagree with that? You know, sustainable development sounds great. Um, but many people, yourself included, believe that ICLE is a subversive organization in essence. So could you explain to us what ICLE is all about? Well, ICLE is an international NGO. NGO means non-governmental organization. Uh, an NGO is accredited by the United Nations for purposes of implementing Agenda 21. Well, there are many, many thousands of NGOs operating in the United States today. One of them is ICLE. Now, ICLE is based in Bonn, Germany. It has regional offices on every inhabited continent of the world. And um, what their objective is, is to create independent city-states. The city-state is the idea that is the core of the creation of world government. So what ICLE has done is it's come all around the world. I'll focus on the United States for a few moments here. In the United States, it has over 600 cities and counties who are dues-paying members to ICLE. Now, the founder of ICLE has given speeches, and some of their other leaders have given speeches around the world, saying that the United Nations, with whom ICLE works very closely, in fact, they wrote the local Agenda 21 program, uh, which is in distribution in cities around the world. But the ICLE leaders have said that the United Nations will ultimately become the United Cities of the world. And so ICLE's purpose is to come in, and here in the United States, their present focus is to work with cities on developing climate change mitigation dynamics. Well, climate change is really just the cover for claiming the sky is falling, we have a worldwide crisis, we need a worldwide response, and to do that, we need a worldwide one government. So ICLE comes in and changes city statutes so that land use can reflect the objectives of global warming mitigation. You say, well, how does that work? 
Well, that works in part by supporting the Agenda 21 program of smart growth development, which means stacking and packing human beings in dense human settlements and ridding the countryside of those nasty humans. And that's a process you certainly see happening in Great Britain. So Ickley is the bane of people who believe in national sovereignty. So these city-states become quasi-independent, but they're underneath the United Nations. So in a sense, the United Nations becomes the sovereign state. They're ripped apart from their geographical location, so they're not, to all intents and purposes, really part of the United States anymore. That's the goal, and you know, as we move along, because it's premature right now, I'll be able to demonstrate and point your listeners to a very short video that illustrates how this process is unfurling itself right in front of our eyes. Ickley has been extraordinarily successful in its efforts, notwithstanding that here in the United States, in our Constitution, in our federal Constitution, there's a prohibition from any state or subdivision, a city or a county, from associating through any treaty, alliance, or confederation with a foreign political power. Well, that's what Ickley is. It's an agent of the UN based in Bonn, Germany, whose objective is to pull out metropolises from the United States, take them out from under their state government, and put them into an international combine that works to the ends of a world order. So when our city council people, like here in Santa Cruz, go and sign on with Ickley, they're committing straight-out treason. So part of our objective at Freedom Advocates is to um, cause Americans to understand, first, the nature of Agenda 21, and second, the nature of the ICLE organization, and tie those two facts together and find out who's responsible in your city for coordinating the ICLE dynamic and bring what's called here a misprision of treason charge against those individuals. Now, the beauty of that is that misprision of treason has no statute of limitations. So when the public finally wakes up and says, what got us into this deep mess? We can pull out those old trustee and filed misprision of treason notices and say, Here's the reason we've gone through this. It's this association with ICLEI. It's the treasonous activities undertaken by our local officials who are simply trying to pander up to the Democrat leaders and pander up to the Republican leaders so that they can advance their own political careers. And they left us with what will have become a huge mess. So the objective is, while politicians today think they have free ride to ram the Agenda 21 protocol down our throats, I want people to understand that we have some courses of action to take and that we can make them responsible for the tyranny they're about to bring down upon us. So what's essential in this then is that people do understand what's going on. So this is an education issue, uh, that there really is legislation that can be used if people understand the situation. That's exactly right. But one of the problems with this, I mean, I was speaking to Dean Gotcher a few months ago of the Institution for Authority Research, and he was explaining how collectivist educational practices had grown in the United States to a great degree and he was pointing to the increased use of facilitators and consensus training all designed to you know give the impression that people have you know are involved in the process and they're responsible but all it's really doing is to get the group to agree on predetermined outcomes and to think in this collectivist way and from what I read about Agenda 21, there seems to be something of this happening within education, with the visioning councils. 
Could you tell us something about that? And do you think that this kind of approach is going to make it difficult for people to see Agenda 21 as a problem if they're educated along these lines? Well, I suppose there's two sides to that answer. The first reaction I will give is one that I think is working with, we'll say, mature adults um, who had somewhere some valid educational background because what we're observing, not just here in Santa Cruz, but, but all around, is that when these consensus meetings happen, you know, they better have it pretty tight because it's easy to bust these consensus meetings. And, you know, it takes a little bit of American rebelliousness to counter them. But Dean Gotcher is one of the, the experts on the consensus process. And uh, people like Bev Ekman are experts on how to bust the consensus process. And a lot of people just using their, their old noggin and common sense just instinctively know how to break the consensus process. And I can tell you that here in Santa Cruz, which is was one of the prototype templates for Agenda 21 process implementation, we began here in the 1970s. The people even here have begun to know how it is that you bust up these consensus processes and that they cannot go away saying, well, we've got agreement. And that's key. It's key to show up. It's key to bust the consensus. You force them into a defensive posture. The consensus meetings, the visionary meetings now in, in this community and in the San Francisco Bay at large, which we'll talk about in a bit, is a situation where when these things happen, they got to come in and they got to cut off all input coming from the audience. Because if the audience starts to input, it starts to fall apart. Well, when you don't have audience involvement, how can you walk away saying there was a consensus? And so their whole false paradigm begins to collapse when citizens are intuitive enough or trained enough to know what these processes are intended to do and how they're, um, they're really a fraud. And, uh, and once you know that, you can expose them. Does this mean that people really need to come to these consensus sessions as a group, having talked about, look, we really do need to put our point of view here? Because if you go into these situations as an individual, then it's extremely difficult to make any change. Well, it's extremely difficult because you make a great point and you're ignored. Yeah. And you don't get called on again. But if you make a great point and you're ignored and you've got a group of people who are scattered, you're not acting like your friends, who are scattered in that audience, and someone else raises their hand and says, that man asked a pretty good question over there and you didn't give an answer. Now they start to get a little nervous. And on the third or fourth attempt, even the guys who came thinking they were supportive they're starting to scratch their head and say, hey, they're hiding the ball. Mm. And, and, and then the whole visioning process collapses. And, and we've seen many examples of that happen. Yes, so that is really exposing what it is, that it really is just a technique to gain consensus. It's not a genuine sharing of ideas. If you actually have people, if, right. just a few people in the audience who are asking genuine questions, but those at the front are not able to answer, then as you say, that does expose the reality of the situation. And what people have to understand, this is the key, is the consensus, by their definition, means a lack of opposition. Yeah. Well, you don't want to ride in there like crazy man on a, on a horse, firing and shooting. You, you want to go in and be methodical and coordinated and just point out the nonsense of this predetermined consensus result. And when you do that, you find that you know, most of the rest of the audience, except for the hardcore people, are with you. And at that point, the hardcore globalists you know, just try to shimmy out of the backside of the room. 
But do you think it's difficult for people to express their genuine opinions when I think that language seems to be so manipulated? I mean, that phrase, I've already pointed to it as one which you could hardly disagree with, sustainable development. I mean, that sounds great. And, you know, nobody in their right mind could say, well, we, should, we ought to develop in such a way that's not sustainable. But that's not all it means. You know, it's, it's a phrase that has all sorts of other connotations underneath. So don't you think that these kinds of phrases, these kinds of terms are used in a way that is deliberately deceptive to stop people thinking straight? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's no question about that. You know, it was Nikita Khrushchev who said, uh, Americans are so stupid, you can spit in their eye and they'll think it's due. And that reflects the attitude of the Agenda 21 team. They think that we'll buy whatever we hear. Oh, sustainable, that sounds so good. But I think, I think Khrushchev was wrong, and I think this presumption by the globalists today is also wrong. Human beings are more capable than that, and I think the day is coming when people are going to really wake up. Mm-hmm. As one of the things that you said that uh, you'd like to mention before we started the interview about uh, what's going on in your area, and I believe that you brought that up when I was asking you about how various issues are being exaggerated or fabricated, and I was asking about the the housing situation and uh, smart development, these kinds of things. Do you want to say something about what's going on in your area with respect to that? Well, I, I will. When I talked earlier about one of the objectives of Agenda 21 is the abolition of private property. This is how they break out the action plan that provide the basis for doing just that. The first action plan is the Wildlands Project, which takes in America over half the land mass, puts it off limit to people's occupation, and put it off limits to resource extraction. So basically, that's why giant wolves in the Arctic Circle are being introduced into the lower 48 you know, because that kind of scares people off and it doesn't do well by the cows that are grazing, etc. And so that's an illustration of the uh, force and applicability of this wildlands objective. But the second land use objective of Agenda 21, used to advance the abolition of private property concept, is called smart growth. Now, smart growth is the stacking and packing of human beings in dense human settlements where they become non-reliant on private transportation. Cars are out, trains and buses, bicycles and footpaths are in. I don't care where you go in the world today, the focus certainly here in the United States is uh, if we get transportation bonds on the ballot, they're all for public transportation systems and they're all for bicycle lanes and nothing about expanding our road base. Well, if you take these smart growth principles and begin to deploy them, what you find is that you can't put cars in because you've got these huge living quarters and you got commercial downstairs, standard smart growth development, and the streets are now commandeered by public transportation systems. And so the goal becomes to get people working where they live in these dense communities. That leads to the creation of what they call walkable communities. Now, in the United States, that concept has been uh, implemented in some pretty good measure all over the place. You see all these urban developments, sometimes they're as short as five or six stories, oftentimes they're along railroad tracks. This is where people, this is where the housing is being provided, the kind of housing that's being provided. While at the same time, if you live in rural America, you know, you're finding that your um, ability to 
compete in the marketplace is being stifled. And uh, finally, you find yourself unable to meet your expenses. And now you're on the 32nd floor in San Francisco at a stack and pack smart growth development. Well, in the San Francisco Bay Area, a program has been launched called One Bay Area. One Bay Area takes nine counties, 101 cities, and seven and a half million people and put them under a common authority. Now, that common authority is an organization called ABAG, Association of Bay Area Governments. ABAG is a cog. For people who think they know what American government is, how it's structured, this will be a real eye-opener to you. A cog is a council of government. Councils of government were formed under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. They're voluntary associations. But as it's turned out, if your city doesn't belong to the cog, it's kind of the domestic ICLEI organization, if your city or county doesn't belong to the cog, you get none of your federal tax funds coming back to your community. So virtually every city in America is a member of a cog. Well, it turns out that cogs have incredible power. You don't have to join them, but if you don't join them, you get no money. If you want any federal money, you have to join the COG. Well, the COG in San Francisco is this organization called ABAG, unelected, pure Soviet style of government. They control everything cities and counties can do. If you join, you've got to follow all their rules. Well, the COG came up with the One Bay Area plan. The goal there is, is to take these nine counties, and seven and a half million people, 101 cities, and merge it into one political economic unit. They have a quarter of a trillion dollars, that's with a T, to remake the San Francisco Bay Area in accordance with Agenda 21 principles. Wow, that's a huge sum. That's a huge sum. Imagine that being done in every metropolis in America. That is the plan, and that's why the U.S. dollar is a goner. This quarter of a trillion dollars in the Bay Area will take major arteries like uh, the El Camino Real, which runs from San Jose, you know, home of Silicon Valley, and extends up to um, San Francisco, and make it off-limits to private cars. It'll be redeveloped in what they call priority development areas, which means that all the development over the next 30 years must be within a half mile of public transit centers. Okay? Now, this is not a California notion. We don't have public transportation in California, and... Uh, you know, it means a, a major rehab of our existing metropolitan areas. That's why it costs so much for the anticipated rehabilitation of our transportation systems and so much more. But if you want to live out in the hills, that's going to be deemed a priority conservation area, which is the implementation of the wildlands project surrounding the urban settlements of the San Francisco Bay Area. So we have a complete reshaping of life in the San Francisco Bay Area, done by an administrative board of bureaucrats operating to federal directives to Agenda 21 eyes, the United States of America. Now, the most profound step in that process has been undertaken. It was adopted at a meeting uh, two weeks ago by ABAG, adopted for the San Francisco Bay Area. It will be a prototype of what will come to every metropolitan area in the United States. And when that's finished, the U.S. will not be what we think it is today. In fact, there's an organization, another NGO, called Joint Ventures Silicon Valley. And this organization is made up of the heads and top people at Silicon Valley's technology companies. So these are some of the biggest companies in the world. And they had a conference in February of this year 
with a keynote speaker who said that the Bay Area is America's first city-state. And by city-state, he said, that means we report on an international basis and we no longer care about Sacramento. He goes on to say that our involvement with Washington, D.C. will be limited because we are truly now committed as a region. That's the big key word, regionalism. We are committed to our status on the international field as a, quote, city-state. Now, that video, 15 minutes long, is the top video we have at freedomadvocates.org. You can go in and hear it with your own ears. The depths to which the Northern California metropolitan area has fallen. And in this same speech, he says that when we have our program in the San Francisco Bay Area, that's an, an indirect reference to one Bay Area, he said we will take the same program and duplicate it for Los Angeles and then duplicate it, this one's particularly interesting, for San Diego slash Tijuana. Tijuana's in Mexico. Aha, uh-huh. yes. So what Agenda 21 seeks to do is abolish political boundaries. And you're going to see that in England. They're seeing that in Australia. Abolish political boundaries so that you get these nebulous regions that all report in on a global basis. That's the action plan at its core of Agenda 21. So when uh, UK listeners over here hear about what's going on in your area as a prototype for the United States, we should really be thinking of this also as a prototype for the whole world. Yes. Yeah. And it's certainly, you know, the, the great prototype that uh, the speaker speaks of is Singapore. We in the Bay Area will become like Singapore, as though anybody ought to applaud that. But it didn't matter because at the ABAG meetings on this, not many citizens know about it. None of these Bill Gates newspapers report anything on this. There's no notice in the Bay Area that it's being remade. But through efforts of organizations like Freedom Advocates working in the Bay Area, um, you know, hundreds of people would show up at these ABAG meetings. Everyone in protest, there was no consensus. Everyone was against it. And they voted by voice vote unanimously to adopt it. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that I think will be particularly interesting to my listeners was we've been talking recently to Martin Erdman about the smart grid and a number of the things that you were saying about this smart growth, I thought, immediately connected with the implementation of the smart grid. And you also mentioned the involvement of Silicon Valley. Do you think that this is all hand in hand with the same process of introducing this kind of technocratic order through the smart grid and smart growth? Is it all one process, do you think? Yes. Without equivocation, mm. the smart grid is what gives government, you think back to 1984, the two-way TV, you know, you can watch TV and the TV can watch you. You know, we are in that realm today and the smart grid is about doing that. It's, it's so that the government knows how much electricity you're using, so the government knows if you've got two refrigerators and they can turn one of them off, it's about uh, total management and control, you know, which is one of the indicia of the Agenda 21 objective. They want to manage and control all human action, and that's why things like biometrics have become so key, because these cameras are all equipped with the ability to biometrically search any individual and tie that individual to whatever databases they have, and they do that by examining the biometrics of your face, which driver's licenses in this country are increasingly going to biometric pictures of you to get a driver's license 
So now those 300 pictures a day taken of you in London or in San Francisco, it doesn't matter because it's all an international scheme, can identify you and everything you thought was private with the click of a computer button. And so the smart grid, which makes so much more control possible, they can turn down your heat, they can turn down your air conditioning, they can shut off your refrigerator, they can do most anything they want through the technology that is advanced through the smart grid. Could I take you back to the Wild Lands project, which I understand has been renamed to the Wild Lands Network? When I go to their website, of course, they make all sorts of statements about how this is necessary, about it's necessary for species to be able to roam wildly and freely across these large stretches of interconnected land. Do you feel that that necessity that they're talking about is really exaggerated? Well, I think that depends upon one's life view. If one thinks that the value of human life is no greater than the value Mm. of um, a toad's life, then the argument can be presented. But if you think that human life is special, then it makes no sense at all, because if we cannot access our resources, we won't survive. So when they talk about taking these huge Canadian wolves that roam in uninhabited places in Canada and put it into the state of Washington, the state of Montana, and Idaho, and Oregon, and Wyoming, and they start to spread south, they now have uh, actually entered California all for the purpose of moving people out of these rural areas and into the uh, one bay area in a stack and pack, I say that there's something not just wrong, but massively immoral. And I think it reflects the greatest challenge human beings have ever faced. Could I ask you to make some comment about common purpose, which you mentioned before the interview began, and you said that this is very important to consider with this issue. Could you tell us something about how that fits into this? Well, I'm not an expert in common purpose. I did do some work on common purpose some years ago, and the people in Great Britain I was working with then understood how various elements in England were advancing Agenda 21. And my observation at the time was that common purpose was just a renamed Agenda 21 program. I mean, here in America, sustainable development was enough to sucker people in, but it seemed that in Great Britain, they went to an extra step with this common purpose program, which is really just a front for the Agenda 21 takedown. And um, common purpose, which changes the focus of how your police operate, is very scary because, you know, police work is service work to the community. But a common purpose, you're going to find more and more where the police work is the regimentation of society. And uh, there's so much more about common purpose that just comes out of the Agenda 21 playbook. What I would say to Brits is that if you've got a common purpose council in your community, just know that to really understand the net effects and net purposes of common purpose, you've got to understand Agenda 21 sustainable development. And, uh, you know, all of this might kind of overwhelm somebody, say, this is just too much, too much, too much thought, and gee whiz, you know, they aren't using guns, so, so how bad can this be? To which I'd answer, and I'd quote Nikita Khrushchev again, who said, he was talking about America, not Great Britain, but the same concept applies. He says, we will bury you, America, without firing a shot. This has been planned for a long time. It's a psychological education game. They've been winning it hands down for decades. It's now time we stand up and figure it out 
And I'll tell you, it's a lot less intimidating in one sense to figure that the war we're fighting is a war over ideas and needs to be fought on the ideological battlefield as opposed to fighting a war where you've got to be a good gun shooter. It might be easier to learn how to shoot a gun than it is to understand Agenda 21. But, uh, you know, if you give me my choice of ultimate wars, I'd rather fight it on this basis than have to fight it the way wars in the past have been fought. But nonetheless, the tricky nature of this war and the consequences of this war are unlike any war ever, ever fought. I mean, one can say Adolf Hitler was going to take over the world. He was a long ways from it. The forces of Agenda 21 designed to take over the world, and they're damn close to doing it. So we need to respond. And the only way we can respond is understand. And I, I absolutely agree with you that uh, coming to understand this is the first step and is the key step. But when we've come to an understanding of it, we've listened to things like this, we've listened to people like you speak, and we've done some research. Where do you go from there? As I, as an individual, um, listeners as individuals, local communities, how can we cooperate you know, with some of the good goals of Agenda 21? Because I don't think we should give the idea that you know it's all evil, but there are some good intentions here. But Surely we should not go along with the whole program because of all the negative things that you've been indicating. How can we tread that fine balance, understanding and yet acting in a way that cooperates with the good in this without selling out to the whole program? Well, I'm not going to accept the premise. And you can say, oh, but isn't it good that, you know, that we keep our waters clean? Well, that's the purpose of government, make sure the air and the water stay clean. I mean, that has been something that government should have been committing to since the beginning of modern times. They haven't, and they didn't so they can make their push for global governments sound like it's rooted in clean air and clean water. It is not, okay? So there's nothing about Agenda 21 that's any good because its objective is pure evil. There is something good about clean air and clean water. Work with your government to see that that happens. But I think, in general, the fight against Agenda 21 is a fight that cannot be taken on at the international level. I don't think, certainly in this country, you can take it on at the national level. Washington, D.C. has sold out. I suspect you could say the same about Great Britain. I think that the battle today... You know, we're told where the battle is. Agenda 21 is the global to local action plan for world government. When you're dealing in your own community and you've got Agenda 21 or common purpose, sustainable development policies coming down, there is something you can do about it. You can organize with fellow townspeople. You need to push these policies off your agenda. You need to get people who understand this dynamic elected to your local level of government. The battle is at the local level. They've already won the national governments. The way we get the national government back, at least in America, is we've got to start where it matters, and that's at home. And if we can regain control of one community and use as a, the example, the model, for how the next community can get rid of these policies, and then ultimately, in this country, you take on your state government. You know, Sacramento is totally capital of California, is totally succumbed to Agenda 21 policy. I mean, completely. There's no way we can go into Sacramento today and regain our state. But there's chances to win at the local level. If we don't win there, ball game is over. If we do win there, we start to create the inertia. We start to elect the local officials, and then we move finally to state houses. And when we have enough state houses, then we can put Washington, D.C. back in its box. It's not going to happen the other way because you don't rise in the Democrat or the Republican Party to national office unless you are at least blind to the Agenda 21 threat. 
Sure. So your advice to people then is essentially the same advice that they say. Think globally, but act locally. Exactly. That's the battlefield. Um, and I'm sure that people would like to find out more about this and about your work. Could you direct people to your website? Because I believe you have at least two. Well, the website on these issues directly is uh, freedomadvocates.org. We arranged in 2000. You know, I had been uh, struggling with what was happening here in Santa Cruz. As it turns out, it was one of the planning and experimentation plots for the United States Agenda 21 program. There are a few others around the country, but Santa Cruz has a University of California campus here, and it was a new one at the time, and so it was a community that was easily overwhelmed back in the 70s, and um, it became the prototype. And, and I own land close to the coast, and it was zoned for multiple houses, and I couldn't get anything done, and I knew there was some deep reason what created this problem. And... Uh, we began to investigate, and by the year 2000, we discovered Agenda 21, and from there we just learned a lot more and, you know, was able to clearly put Santa Cruz as a linchpin for the early Agenda 21 movement. And uh, this is notwithstanding the fact that I attended these Agenda 21 meetings in the Santa Cruz Mountains back in 1996, where they denied it had anything to do with the UN, and it wasn't until some years later I discovered that was a bold lie and that this all was a globalist plan for the taking of wildland areas. We have some redwood forests behind the beach, and uh, these redwood forests are under constant attack by government officials on the people who live and operate there. And, um, you know, our towns now are <laughs> turning more stack-and-packed by the day, and um, a lot of people dependent on the government goal, and... Um, the people elected to office thus far, we've not been successful in the objective of turning the local government over, but the awareness is growing and uh, optimism remains and uh, communities that are, are less entrenched uh, have an easier time of pulling out from ICWI, of getting local officials elected who do represent, I'll call them American interests. Before we close, the one thing I'd like to ask you is if there's one major message that you'd like to leave us with that um, encapsulates the, the whole conversation, is there anything you'd like to say along those lines? Well, I think I'd say that the nature of humanity is on the line. I mean, we're born with certain unalienable rights, and our peace and our productivity are dependent upon government recognition of those rights, and it thereby government takes his role as servant to the people. Agenda 21 reverses that order of things, where the people deemed worthy of being servants to the government will be allowed to survive. And, and if you aren't, if you're not part of the collectivist mentality, you simply become expendable. So it is a complete degradation of the nature of human life and of humanity. And if we thought Adolf Hitler posed a risk to the world, let me just say that the Agenda 21 protocol is multitudes worse and of a much greater threat because they're much closer to attaining what it was that Hitler never really got that close to. And so we need to understand that the experiments of the early 20th century, the Bolshevik Revolution and the Mussolini-Hitler dynamic were but test grounds for how it is they can develop the system of life that is embodied by Agenda 21. So become aware Take some action locally, make a difference, and don't give up. 
Well, Michael Shaw, it's been a fantastic uh, pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a very sobering conversation, but you've given not only a lot of information, but some great advice as well. So thank you ever so much. As I said at the beginning of the interview, I heard you many, many times with Dr. Stan talking about this very issue. So it's been a, a very great privilege to have you here on this show. So thanks very much for coming on to talk to us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me.